We've been studying uh, along a series called I Like Church. I like this title. And the reason I like this title is because I Like Church is such a sort of reaction to some of our cultural malaise about, ooh, cultural malaise, did you like that? Cultural sort of uh, cynic Cynic, cynic-minded people where everything's sort of skeptical and everybody's skeptical of the church and everybody's skeptical of organized religion and everybody has a hard time with, well, the church, you know, they, they have these problems and this problem and, boy, they need to really fix this and they need to fix that. Listen, everybody's, everybody knows the answer, okay? Everybody knows the answer to fixing the church's problems. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I'll tell you, there's only one way it really happens is if you attach yourself to the church. Because Jesus died for his church. Jesus loves his bride. Jesus, we, we are his. He, we belong to him. There's no way to change the church from the outside in. You've got to become part of it. And as soon as you become part of it, you know what happens? It gets more imperfect. And that's just the way it is. But I like church. I, I just like the sta- saying the statement. And for us all to sort of embrace this idea that we love Jesus and we love his church. And we're going to do everything we can, imperfect as it is, to help it become all that it's supposed to be. All that Jesus wants us to be. Amen? So, um, so we've, got, we've, got, um, we've been kind of talking about through this, through this series, we've been sort of going over this uh, material that really a lot of it I'm going to be sharing in something called Square One. Square One is for new people to come to, uh, to come to One Chapel and to be part of our community of believers to figure out how it all works. But I'm spending time right here at the beginning of our, of our church launch, right up here in Church 101. That's, that's, that's all I'm really doing. I'm just taking some extra time to work with Church 101 and sharing some ideas and putting foundation stones in place. November 7th, we're going to start uh, uh, our, sort of our, our first sequence of what Church 101, then Essentials 201, which is kind of about uh, our life in Christ and just getting uh, every, some of that settled where prayer and Holy Spirit activity in our lives and how that works and how it works best. And then Discovery 301 is going to be sort of a... a, 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 a <laughs> Discovery 301 is going to be a class that has a discovery of our gifts and our talents, <laughs> of our gifts and our talents and our ability to find our place in the body of Christ. And then, of course, Team One is the way things happen around here, the way things get done uh, people serving, people finding their place to serve, all right? And so that'll happen on each Sunday of every month. Church 101 will always be on the first Sunday. Uh, Essentials 201, always on the second. And then off of these meetings will come all kinds of uh, connect groups, all right? And so, so that you can get the picture. But we're studying kind of Church 101 here, all right? Are you ready? Turn your Bibles to Psalm 145, verse 4. Psalm 145, verse 4. There's been a trend in our nation over the last uh, 25 years, probably, uh, maybe 30 years, where churches are trying to figure out how to be relevant to culture. And, and, and I think they always have been. We've always had this wrestling match of church culture and how it connects to just our general culture. That's always been an issue. We've always struggled with that. But it's been in the last 30 years that it's kind of reached an all-new high, an all-new frenzy. And the problem is, in the last 50 years or so, cultural uh, changes have happened at lightning speed. We just, it's, it's, it's amazing how fast technology changes. I was just talking to a couple here before church, and they were talking about how they have sort of they drew the line. They're, they're not going to do the computer thing. They've just, you know, they've lived their lives. They're not, they're not going to give into it. It's just, I'm going to keep functioning the way we've been functioning, and we're okay. And they're okay with that. And so I have to send them a snail mail letter. <laughs> and actually, it's okay. I, and, and in some ways, I was talking to them. I was like, wow, I wish I could do that. <laughs> because I'm not sure that this 
technology thing is always best for us, but that's another sermon. But things are happening at a lightning quick pace. So the church is wrestling to make sure that we can be relevant. We're trying to connect with culture. And so we do it through music. We do it through the way we reach out. We do it through lots of different entities within our churches. We create programs. We create ministries. Um, Because I've been a worship leader for many years, I've seen so many churches try to be cutting edge in their music. And so their music kind of becomes the calling card. But then that upsets the old people in the church. And the old people don't like this newfangled music that they're playing. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. And so, they, so, so, so there's, a, there's a thing here that they wrestle through. And so lots of churches end up landing on something called a blended worship service. And what that typically means, blended worship typically means that nobody's happy. Nobody's happy. We get a little bit of this, a little bit of that. I, I, per, I actually don't believe in blended worship that makes people happy. I believe in serving the members of the body of Christ. I believe in serving the family. What I want to talk about today is I want to talk about the church through the lens of a multi-generational family. I want to talk about the church today through the lens of a multi-generational family. Psalm 145, verse 4, says, One generation will commend your works to another. One generation will commend your works to another. This is a really interesting idea that David writes about. Now, I think David had a unique perspective on this which we'll find out in just a second. But here's what I want to tell you. I think we're pretty good at commending God's works, at talking about God's works, at sharing God's works with people in our own demographic sphere. But I don't think we've gotten very good at sharing Christ's works across the generational spectrum. I'm not sure we're good, right, at this particular time in the life of the 21st century American church, that we're great at sharing God's works cross-generationally. And this cross-generational idea, I think, is so important for us, and I'm going to show you why. David had a special insight on this idea, and I think we can find that in 1 Samuel chapter 17. Why don't you turn over there, 1 Samuel chapter 17. Take your Bibles. If you've got a little notepad, I want you to take some notes because I think... It helps you retain 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 25, all right? First Samuel 17, 25 says, Now the Israelites had been saying, Do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will have great wealth, will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his father, father's family from taxes in Israel. Now, the reason I started with this verse is I, wanted to, I didn't want to read the whole story because you know the story. Most of you in this room already know the story. And the story is about David and Goliath. It's about David and how he came to this fight that the Philistines were having against the Israelites. And he shows up. He brings some bread and some cheese, the scripture says, to his brothers. And so he brings this and he gives it to his brothers. And something very interesting happens as he shares this gift with his brothers. He, he, he comes upon the, the military armies on two hills and he, and he realizes there's something going on here and this giant is coming out every day and he's challenging Israel. And he's saying, you send me one man and I'll fight him and whoever wins, the rest will serve, the rest will serve us. So verse 26, start there. David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? I love that little phrase from David. He was a a shepherd boy. He was a child. He was essentially a teenager. My teenagers don't like being called children, but they are. You You know, the issue with teenagers is they're just not good at being humans yet. 
It's true, they're not good at it yet. They're still working on it. We shouldn't expect them to be really good at it. They've just got a few, they're just a few years into it. So, so we should give them a little grace, all right? So David, though, has his motives in the right place. You can see it's his passion is coming out as he says it. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Verse 27, they repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. You'll get exempted from taxes. You'll get the king's daughter. I mean, these are all great things. How many would like to be exempt from taxes? Yes. I don't know about the king's daughter, but taxes would be great. So verse, verse 28, when Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him. He burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here? Such a classic older brother thing to say. And with whom did you leave those few sheep? Whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. His older brother meets his gift that he brings from his father with resentment. He comes, David comes, he sees the battle, he asks, what's gonna, what is this? What is happening? Who is defying the armies of the living God? What is happening here? This doesn't look right to me. Just a teenager. And then his older brother gets mad at him. And could it be that his older brother gets mad at him? Because just, just a little while back, if you look in the ch- chapters just before this, we see the whole family, all David's brothers standing in line, the scripture says they stood and waited for some servant to go out and find David in the shepherd fields to bring him back because Samuel was about to anoint him king. Could it be that he was jealous? Could it be that he was frustrated? Could it be that, he, could it be that David had some of these characteristics? Absolutely it could. He was a teenager. So, so, there, so there's, there's, this, there's this family dynamic happening here. And as the family, as he begins to, 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 to speak, this rage kind of comes out of him. He says, why have you come down here? Who did you leave those? He insults him. Who did you leave those few sheep with? And then David's response. Look at verse 29. It's so funny. Now what have I done? <laughs> That's such a brotherly thing to say. I have had so many interactions with my brother just like that. Now what have I done, said David? Can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter. And the men answered him as before. And what David said was overheard and reported to Saul. And Saul sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. So what happens is they're, they're having this little argument. The commander of all the army hears it. This is King Saul. He hears about what's happening. He sends for him. He comes and says, so you got this teenager standing before the king. Hey, king. Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. I'll go and fight him for you. <laughs> Verse 33, replies, he replies, Saul replies, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a boy, and he's been fighting a fighting man since his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it and struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. And when it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and kill it, killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. He's full of passion. He's ready to go do it. And he's got some history here. I mean, uh, killing a lion and a bear, I mean, I haven't done it lately, but I've, you know, it's, It's pretty hard. (laughs) So here it is. He says to the the king, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. I think that's pretty much like Saul saying, I think your odds are zero, but I'd love to see you try. Go ahead, David. Have a great time. (laughs) But before he does that, he gives him something. 
Verse 38, then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on the sword over the tunic and tried walking around. And because he was not used to them, or because he was not used to them, but he said, I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Now, stop right there. It's so amazing. Saul says to him, okay, go ahead and go. And then he gives him his armor. He gives him the armor that he fights with. But what happens here is that David can't fight in Saul's armor. David can't, can't, he can't manage it. He can't maneuver it. It's not comfortable to him. He, he's learned to fight another way. Now, I don't think we can say that for all time and eternity after this, all armies started fighting with little slings and rocks. <laughs> right? Right? David didn't go to a sling and rock army. Okay? So we got to be careful about what we, the conclusions we draw to this. But what we can say is that we know that David killed that Goliath, that giant. He killed this guy that everyone else was afraid of. Saul tried to make him do it his way. Couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. He did it the way that he'd been trained. He did it the way that he'd experienced life. So here is David. He, let's finish up this story just real quickly. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, he began to approach the Philistine. Of course, you know the rest of the story. Incredible thing here to, to realize. Number one, David met this resistance from his older brother. His brother resented him even being there, would have sent him home if he could have. Then the king tells him, here, you can't do this, number one. You can't do this. It's not possible for you. Then secondly, here, take my stuff and do it. I think this is a picture of the generational tension that we find inside the church. We find it amongst our different groups what we like, our tastes, our experiences, our cultures that we bring together. Listen, one chapel is called one chapel in, in, a, in, in one major part of the vision. And the idea is, man, we need different kinds of people, people from all walks of life to be a healthy and strong family. We've got to make sure that we have people who understand the world from different perspectives. We've got to make sure that we understand who's coming to the table. We got to make sure that we, we are, are getting the benefit of people from their experience and from each of their cultures. That we, when we come together, what we do is we, we, we sort of bring our culture to the door, but then what happens is we surrender it to the culture of God's family of believers. And then we use whatever he's given us to help the people, to serve the people around us. And I think Nothing is, nothing's sort of worse than a, a church sort of focusing down on one demographic group. It becomes one-dimensional. And it, it's really fun. It's fun to watch. Like, I, I'm young enough to remember Gen X churches. Do you, remember the, do you remember that? Anybody remember Gen X? Ooh, Gen X. They don't know what they're doing. That's why they call this Gen X. <laughs> right? They have no, we have no idea what they stand for. So we'll just give them an X. I was, I was part of some of those first Gen X services. And what you find... Is, is nothing so wonderful than watching a Gen X crowd of cool, hip college students <laughs> getting married and then having their first child and then having to surrender to the minivan. <laughs> they don't want to do it. They don't want to do it. And so I think what makes our churches healthy, what makes our churches strong is that we acknowledge that the family is here and that we're all in different stages of development. Now, let's look real quickly at uh, some, some verses. Just real quickly. I'm just going to go through them. You don't have to turn there, but I want you to listen to me. The New Testament compares the church to three ideas. One is a building. 1 Peter 2.4 says, now just listen. Just kind of listen with me and go with me. As you come to him, the living stone rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house 
to a, be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.22 refers to us as a building that is joined together and rises to become a holy temple. And, and in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives. Okay, so the building, it's, it's okay to, to sort of refer to us as God building us and we're stones being set in place because he dwells in us. Second idea that the New Testament identifies is a body. The Apostle Paul uses the, the physical human body. 1 Corinthians 12, 27 says, Now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. And Romans 12 says, Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these, do, these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, we who are many form one chapel. <laughs> one, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Now that last phrase there is significant. And each member belongs to all the others. There's something that we have to embrace if we're going to be a healthy church, a strong church. And it's the third idea that the New Testament brings to us, and it is the idea of a family. Galatians 6.10 says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. Hebrews 2 says, In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. So both the one who makes men holy... And those who are made holy are of the same family. I love this little phrase right here. Listen to this. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers. Jesus is your brother. You have been invited into a family where Jesus was the firstborn among many, many brothers and sisters. And when we understand that, we, it changes our perspective about who we are and what we've been born into. When we, when we understand that we're part of this family, it gives us courage and strength. 1 Timothy 3 says, know how people ought, you, you ought to know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the, the pillar and foundation of the truth. This, this speaks of our family as a household living together in a home. Matthew 6, verse 9 we just prayed it a few minutes ago. It is the Lord's Prayer, and he teaches his disciples. He says, this is how you should pray. What does he say? Our Father. He is our Father. Jesus is our brother. We have been adopted, Romans says, into a family. We have been adopted by our Abba, our Daddy, our, our, our intimate Father God. This family idea is so big. Ephesians 2.19 says, you are a member of God's very own family and you belong in God's household with every other Christian. There's key truths here that we need, to, we need to embrace, all right? Number one, the church is a spiritual family. The church is a spiritual family. It is something that we are attached to. It is something that God does by his spirit. He connects us with his Holy Spirit and makes us into a family. Number two, God expects you to be a member of a church family. You, you can't be a part of the body of Christ without being a member of a church family. I think it's very difficult because what happens, and we're going to discover that in just a second. I'll, sh I'll show you in just a second. A Christ, number three, a Christian without a church family is an orphan. A Christian without a church family is an orphan. If you don't have a group of people that you connect with, you identify with, a group of people that say, these are my people, my people. These are my peeps. These are, my, these are the people that I belong to. These are the people that I connect to. You find, as an orphan, that you grow up misshapen. Orphans who don't grow up with families have many scars, many wounds, many difficult issues. Some of you may be orphans in the room here today, and you know the hardness, the difficulty, the struggle Still, you deal with it today, potentially. What happened to you? The feeling of loss, the feeling of isolation and aloneness. Church family is how God designed it. So I was thinking about this, and as I was wrestling through the ideas of, okay, so how do you build, how do you build a great church family? What do you do? What does it look like? How does it work? 
And I, I, I have been espousing and teaching this idea for many, many years. And this idea is called the family worship table. I want you to write it down in your notes. The family worship table. And the reason it came about is because I saw so many churches arguing about how the family functioned. I saw so many families in tension about what they should and shouldn't do, how it should work, what it should look like. Now, the family worship table is an idea. It, it, it signifies a table. There's nothing that's sort of more, more, no more iconic than um, the family dinner table in terms of family health. Now, in our divorce culture that we live in in America, it's not... It hasn't been that way for a while. It used to be that if you could look at a family, you could see that they were committed to having dinner together as a family. And around this dinner table, they would gather in a consistent way each week. But these days with sports and kids stuff and all the things that we're doing, the, even, even church uh, uh, responsibilities and things that people are involved in, listen, I am not a person that wants you to be involved in everything. As a pastor, that's not what I want because I know that doesn't serve your family well. You've got to choose where God wants you to be involved. He has to lead you, and you've got to find your, your place in the body of Christ. You can't do everything. You have to do a few things, and you have to do them well. That's what I want. As your pastor, that's what I want you to do. I want you to set priorities. I want you to say, I can do this, but I can't do this. All right? Yes, sir. All right. Okay. Okay. So, so here's, here's this, this family dinner table is this picture, and the divorce culture that we live in has really sort of skewed that. Most of us are touched by this divorce culture in some way. If our own family is not, has not suffered the pain of divorce, we know somebody very close to us who has. And here's the lesson that we all learn culturally as uh, people who live in this Western mindset in the 21st century, is if people fight too much then they leave. Can I just encourage you that the family is where people are supposed to learn how to fight? The family is where people are supposed to learn how to wrestle through ideas, how to talk to each other with respect, how to deal with, how to train one another. I mean, it's true, children, you know, children are trained by their parents, but the truth is when, pe when people have parents, oh, what did I, what? Where are there? When people have, uh, when parents have children, it is, man, I am having so much trouble today. I worked eight, ten hours yesterday on that house. That was awesome. How many people did the work day with the church yesterday? Woo, good job. I appreciate you so much. That was awesome. But you're, I'm paying the price for it, and so are you today. Okay. So it's true that when, when, when parents have children, that they train them. However, we all know that Adults, parents, are caused to be grown into maturity by having children. <laughs> the way that people become mature and become real adults is they have some kids. <laughs> and it forces you into a role of maturity. It forces you to do things the right way. It forces you into that responsibility. And so... Um, as, they, as, as we look at this dinner table, I think it's important to identify the fact that we have everybody at the table. Everybody should be at the table. There must be a way for us all to gather at the table. And in many ways, this is our table, Sunday morning. We need Abrahams, we need Isaacs, and we need Jacobs in our churches. We don't just need Abrahams, we don't just need Isaacs, we need all three for our churches to be healthy. So where do we find people coming together in this picture in our modern day? Where do we find it the best? Where do we, where do we find it? Where do we see people coming from each generation, each demographic group? Where do, where do we find them coming together? Holidays. Holidays. Oh, Starbucks, that's right. <laughs> Although what I notice at Starbucks is I notice a lot of people in the same generational group meeting together. I don't see that cross-generational thing, which is what we need to do better at. Older adults reaching out to younger adults, younger adults reaching out to older adults, and training one another. Let's look at it. All right, so what you see is, you see it at Christmas and Thanksgiving, and you see people coming together, and they're all coming together, grandma and grandpa, and you see Jimmy and J Johnny and, and Sally, and they're all there, and they're coming together, and what do you see when you, when you have all those 
generational elements coming together? Fights, yes, exactly. You do, but you're, well, we're supposed to learn how to fight fair, how to treat one another with respect, with forgiveness, and then fix it, and then be okay. This is what has to happen in our church. I'm sure you're going to disagree with some things that I'm going to say over the years. You need to know how to fight well and how to fight fair. We can argue, we can disagree, but those arguments do not have to define us. I th- and I'm going to teach on that in the next couple of weeks. I'm going to teach on this very issue of how our belief systems and structures, how we can let one another wrestle with believing some different things. We have to have some absolutes, and we all agree on those. But th- everything else is, is, is up for discussion. And families have to wrestle through these kinds of things. So we come together, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and everybody's kind of wrestling with different issues. But what, another thing emerges. Something else happens. And what you see is you start seeing grandma and grandpa helping the little kids get their plates. Sometimes grandma and grandpa are immobile. And so you see the teenagers bringing a plate of food to grandma and grandpa. You see a little teenager sitting there listening to grandpa tell a World War II story. And his dentures clicking awkwardly. And that boy is trying to get away, but he can't. He's in the story, and it's going to happen, and he has to endure it. Something happens when a family gets together. And what I want you to see when you see one chapel, when you see this group of people coming together, is we've got to have people from each group coming to the table and serving one another and sharing with one another. We've got, to have, we've got to have this give and take. How is that kid that I just described, listening to his grandpa, ever going to be trained? How is he going to be um, brought up if he never has to interact with somebody who's not from his own demographic group? If he just hangs out with his kids all the time, if he, um, his, his, own, his own friends, his own people, he's, he will never be trained. Now, I'm trying to train my kids right now. Okay, and so I've been in this process for a while. I have five children, and so I'm, I'm teaching them how to act at the table. My, my, my two oldest boys just kind of came through a season. They're kind of, we've trained them now. They're doing better. But they came through a season where everything gross was funny. <laughs> so I had to teach them how not to talk about boogers and farts at the table. My little girl for several years, no, maybe, maybe a year, maybe two years, would sit, and she couldn't sit on her chair. I don't know what it is about a certain age. My two little ones, my two youngest ones, they don't sit. They more lean on the chair. They sit, and they, they're kind of like this, and then they get up on their knees, and they, they're all over the place. And every, every couple of weeks in dinner, it would just, we would we'd be sitting there, and all of a sudden, you'd be like, boom, <laughs> crying and beans flying and all this stuff. And that's, okay, that's why I tell you to get up and sit on your seat and put your feet in front. That's why you have to sit down. (laughs) Now, here's what's happened in a lot of churches. What's happened in a lot of churches is we've decided to send the kids to the kids' table. And we want a dinner that is just for us. My wife loves nothing more than to go out to dinner with me and have adult conversation. (laughs) Me and another couple with with my wife. We love it. It's incredible. She loves it. It's wonderful. However, our lives, our responsibilities revolves around these five children that we love dearly. And they help define what we do, how we act, what we say, where we're going. If we, if we can see the church as a family, we stop seeing it as a place where we can go to get what we want. If we see the church as a family instead of a place where we consume things, we can't see the church as a place for consumption. We have to see the church as a place for being consumed by God. Not a place for, for, for us to get our needs met, but being consumed by Him. And then with that consuming fire that lives in us, then we begin to turn around and serve other people and meet their needs. That's what the picture of the church is supposed to be, his family, his calling on this family. And so as we look at that, we've got to ask the question, so who creates the culture at a family dinner table? 
Who creates the culture at a family dinner table? Now, you'd like to say it was dad. Dad, dad creates the culture. Sits at the head, hey. <laughs> Children are to be seen and not heard. Anybody ever heard that? That's a good one. I kind of grew up with that. There's a, there's, a, there's a thing here that happens. There's, a, there's a, a, a something that happens when you're at the table and, and you, 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 you want somebody to create the culture. You want it to be mom. You want mom to sort of make things orderly. And mom does. She gives a lot. But the truth is, if you're just there with adults, it's a totally different experience than when you have kids there. It's a completely different experience. I have dinner with my children every week. I'm telling you, it's different. The children define, this is crazy, I know it seems crazy, the children actually create the culture. The children create the atmosphere, the children create the environment. Now, what our job is as parents is to make sure that it doesn't descend into chaos. Okay, so, so what some churches have done is they've sent all the kids to the kids' table and it becomes like the Lost Boys of, of Peter Pan. You see that the lost boys, they're just, they're just kind of doing their own thing. Food fights and just, they kind of become their own thing. They don't, they don't get the benefit of the wisdom and experience of somebody who's been there before them. Some tables, some, some family worship tables, some churches, they send the old people off to the old people's homes. They don't want them at the table. I, I heard a story of a pastor recently who got up and said, hey, you know, we're, we're, we're about the next generation, and if you don't like the kind of music we're playing, then you could just go on down the road, which is a terrible way to do it. It's a terrible way to create culture. Now, here's the thing that we've all got to sort of embrace. Here's the thing that we've all got to sort of settle. What is the point of having the family together? What is the, how does, how does this make us better? 1 John chapter 3. Turn over there. 1 John chapter 3. Verse 16 in chapter 3, 1 John. Turn there. This says, this says, this is how we know what love is. All right, this is pretty good. Hey, he's going to define it for you right here. This is how we know what love is. You want to know what love really is? Here it is. Here's the picture. This is how we know it. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And then he adds this unfortunate next phrase. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Then he goes on to talk about material possessions and how inconvenient it is to lay down your life for somebody else. One of the things that we've got to settle as a family is it's most difficult to love people who are not like you. One of the greatest tests of our own godliness and our own holiness is our ability to deal with people who we don't necessarily like. <laughs> I think all families go through seasons where the teenager doesn't like the parent and the parent doesn't like the teenager. Or mom doesn't like grandma. Grandma doesn't like mom. I think every family, that's just part of it. But it is the pulling together of those relationships, the willingness to allow those relationships to exist and to live and to, to be part of our lives that defines us and makes us who we are and the ability to lay down our lives. I don't know if you've realized this or not, but ch having children does not, um, it's not for your own personal fulfillment. <laughs> I'm, I, it's, it's crazy when you see these teenagers that are having little babies, you know, they end, up, they end up being pregnant, and it's they, such a wonderful thing. Man, they, they just don't know what's coming. They think it's so sweet, it's so wonderful. Oh, it's so... And then the next several years of their lives are consumed. It's hard work. It is hard, hard work. But it is the calling of every parent. It is the calling of every... What is the purpose of every grandparent and parent? It's to raise the next generation and help perpetuate the message 
the identity of that family. The purpose of grandparents is not golf, golfing. <laughs> the purpose of grandparents is not vacationing. The purpose of... Yeah, I know, my wife's like, oh, bummer. <laughs> the purpose of grandparents and parents is to embrace the next generation and pull them up. Now, that's going to be a little bit tricky as we begin to form what the church looks like because our job, as we, the older we get... The older we get in this church, what's going to happen is our job is to look down and to pull the next generation up into, to commend God's works to the next generation. And as we pull them up into the ministry with us, if we pull them up into this service with us, as we include them in what we do. Now listen, we're going to have, we're going to have children's ministry stuff. We're going to have, we're going to have uh, Wednesday night meeting or groups for student ministries. We're getting ready to start some student ministries here in the next month, there's going to be two, a uh, couple of dates that we're going to invite all the teenagers to, to some place where they can kind of meet each other. We're going to start into that, all right? We're going to do all that. But there's got to be some place, one place where everybody comes together and it's okay that they're connected. And our children that are being trained over in the other hallway, it's okay for them to be trained over there. It's okay for us to sing a hymn even though some of you don't even know what a hymn is. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay for us. <laughs> it's okay for some of you that are older and appreciate the hymns more than these newfangled songs. That it's, it's okay for us to sing those songs because what we're doing is we're reaching uh, into the next generation. And so you're going to hear often, you're going to hear a hymn here. You're going you're gonna to hear the creed being said. You're going to hear the Lord's Prayer. We're going to say it together as a family. We're going to lay our lives down for one another. But we've got, to, we've got to understand it's crazy for us to think that the people with the least amount of maturity, in other words, the youngest among us, should have, to, should ha- be, have the, the wisdom and understanding to put up with our way of doing things we got to be careful we don't end up like Saul. we got to be careful we don't end up resentful like Eliab. We have to be careful that we're open to new ways of doing things. Remember when we t- said there's, there's two ways to have dinner, to create a dinner culture? One is children should be seen and not heard. Eat your beans. Be quiet. Eat those. <laughs> the other way is to be engaged in their lives, to laugh with them, to tell jokes, and then when it gets out of hand, hey, that's a little too far. <laughs> to, to enjoy the atmosphere, to, to encourage the process and the development, to learn things from your kids. Do you know you can learn a lot from your kids? They're pretty smart. In fact, sometimes they're so smart, they call you on the stuff that you're not doing. <laughs> There's got to be some way to respect the next generation. And respect the process that they're in. We shouldn't expect them. We need to respect them, but we can't expect them to know everything. So wouldn't it be cool if you had a church? All right, just go with me here. This is the last thing I want to say. Wouldn't it be cool if you had a church that would put the wisdom and experience and the resources. Hello, somebody say amen. The resources, the wisdom, experience, and resources of age. And we put that together with the enthusiasm and the energy and the innovation of the next generation, of the young? What if we put those things, wisdom, experience, and resources together with innovation and energy and, and, and enthusiasm, and we put those things together, what would we have? We would have awesomeness. That's right. <laughs> we would have a church that is healthy, a healthy family. A family of believers that understands what their role is, that understand they belong to something bigger than themselves, greater than themselves, that our responsibility is to grow people up, is to grow young believers up. That's why we're going to lean to them, by the way. We're going to lean to the young, the next generation, because we think it's our job to pull them up. So we've got to lean towards them. We can't just say, well, we want to do it our way, and you guys have to put up with us. No, there's got to be something that we lean into them and say, yeah, we want your innovation. We want your enthusiasm. We want your energy. So come on. I'll show you a little bit of the things that I know, but you may come to the uh, table with your own idea. You may come with a little stone and a sling, and that's got to be okay. Are you with me? This is an important piece for the health 
and the longevity and the legacy of one chapel. So I want you to embrace it. And we'll be talking about it over and over again through the years because that's what families do. They reassert their vision and their mission and their heritage and their history, where they came from and where they're going. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you'd give us understanding about these things. Father, I ask you to help us where we're weak. Teach us how to lay our lives down for each other. Teach us how to surrender ourselves for the sake of others who aren't like us. Help us to give of ourselves in a way that represents you so well that it is the the building blocks of our family, the ideas of service and sacrifice, of selflessness, teaching the next generation how to be humble, how to be respectful. Father, I pray that you'd teach all of us how to participate in this family, how to connect to it, and how to serve it because it's your idea. The church is your idea. We like it. We like the family of God, and we want to be part of what you're doing. Now, if you just keep your eyes closed for a moment and just keep your heart focused, I think it's important in every service that we have together that we take a moment and we ask the question, is there somebody here who you feel like an orphan. You feel like, you, you kind of feel alone, you feel lost. Maybe you haven't given your life to Christ. You haven't given everything away to him. And even through the service today, you were, you were wrestling with the idea and what was happening and you sensed the presence of Jesus, but still today, right here at the end, you want to take a moment. I, I want to give you a chance to respond to him. I am not going to embarrass you in any way. I'm not going to call you forward. But I do want you to have a chance to respond to what Jesus is doing in your heart. And so if you feel like this is a moment where you could say, I want to belong to a family like that. I'm not talking about membership. I'm talking about the kingdom of God. I'm talking about God's family. I'm talking about accepting the work of Christ in your life. Getting rid of your own way of doing things and being willing to do his way, to follow Jesus, to become a Christ follower. Maybe it's been a long time since you've followed him maybe this this is the first time even though you've been around church for a long time this is the first time to make a decision and to make a commitment so if you want to respond to Jesus telling you to come home come home to his family come into his kingdom follow him trust in what he's done If that's you this morning, I just want you to raise your hand. Just lift up your hand. First time or the first time in a long time. I just want you to lift up your hand. Yep, I see you right there. Yep, I see you. Yep, anybody else? Anybody else? That's so good. Don't wrestle with Jesus. It's not worth it. He always wins. Just respond to him. Anybody else? Lift up your hand. You want to make this a moment of declaration. I'm going to follow Jesus. That's so good. So good. Can I pray with you? I want to pray with every one of us and just kind of seal this idea in us. Now, people say things they don't mean way too often. But this prayer, if you will mean it from the bottom of your heart, if you will take it and you will say these words, it's not the words that you're saying, it's the faith that's in your heart and and asking Jesus to come and to lead your life. So let's all pray this prayer together. Would you all join me? Everybody praying out loud. Just repeat after me. Say, Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your work on the cross. Thank you for saving me. Forgive me of all my failures, all my sins, all my foolishness. Would you come and be Lord? Be the Lord of my life. I want to follow you. I refuse my own way, and I choose your way. I want to follow you all the days of my life. I repent of my sin, and 
and I follow you. Thank you, Jesus, for forgiveness, for making me a new person. Let today be a day that starts the rest of my life. New life in you. Now let me just pray over you. Father, thank you for what you're doing in people's hearts right now and how you're changing us, making us new, adding us to a family. Lord, we thank you so much. We ask you to seal this work in our hearts, every one of us, so that we can be the people, the family that you've called us to be, representing you to the world. We thank you so much. Seal it now. Do your work. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, let's thank Jesus for what he's doing. Amen. Here's the last thing I want to do. We're going we're gonna to give of our tithes and our offerings. But let me just draw your attention. If God did something in your life today, if he's done something, he's spoken something to you, if you made a commitment just now, there's a little connection card in your worship guide. We'd, I'd love for you to just mark that down. Mark down that, that you were committing your life to Christ or that you were renewing your commitment to Christ. I would love to follow up with you and help you with next steps. That would be so great. And so um, if you want to give feedback to the church, you can also use that connection card and just tell us about what Jesus is doing in your life, all right? Let's prepare to give our tithes and offerings. Certainly, if you're new, if you're brand new, you don't have to give in this offering, but this is something we've committed to because we're part of this family and we're committed, committing to contribute to the work of Christ in this city and around the world, all right? So uh, let's pray over our tithes and offerings as we give in Jesus' name. Father, we thank you for giving to us. You love the world so much that you gave your only son. And so, Lord, we, we mirror you. <laughs> we act like our parent, our father, and we choose to be a giver. And we give in this offering, not because we're forced, not because we believe it's duty, but because we want to out of a grateful heart, out of a heart of worship, out of a heart of giving to what we're part of. Father, we pray that you would expand your kingdom, that you would build it, grow it, Make, make us strong and healthy in this city so that we can do things here and in other nations of the world. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, stand up and let's worship the Lord as the offering buckets are passed.